those of you hacking away out there, I'm this close to sharing in your misery. <laughs> Thankfully, I haven't started that yet, so I'll be able to continue, hopefully, preaching. But I haven't slept in a well in about four days, so the Holy Spirit needs to make sure I don't preach any heresy, right? Very important here. Um, providentially, it is Sanctity of Life Sunday, and we're in Genesis 21, verses 1 through 7. A great text for Sanctity of Life Sunday. Hear the word of our God. <clears throat> now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Let us pray. Father, as we look at this passage, it seems a, a bit of an oasis in the midst of uh, a lot of sin and misery. Help us to see how utterly remarkable this oasis is. Help us to see your goodness and your greatness, that we might be encouraged in the midst of our own difficulties. Open our ears and let us hear. In the name of Jesus, the living word, your final word to us. Amen. We all have great days, don't we? There are certain days that stand out in your memory as, that was a good day. That was a significant, important day. The happiest days of my life have been days that were long anticipated and days that I often feared wouldn't actually come to pass. For instance, my ordination in 1998. That was a day I wasn't sure was going to come to pass. I believed that God had called me into the ministry and I waited and waited and waited. Marriage. That was a day that I didn't think it was going to happen for me. And finally, it happened. Not quite Abraham age, but pretty old, nonetheless. And then birth of my daughter. I love that picture from right after she was born and she's nestled there in my arms and I remember the joy that overcame me. That something so long anticipated and desired had finally come to pass. Happy days. Joyful days. Like that day that we were just read about because they had waited so decades for this day to come. 
waiting on the promise of God. Is it really going to happen? Did he lie to me? And it finally came. Our big idea this morning is that God provides for our joy in and through his promises. So we start that idea with the the fact that God gives us great joy in fulfilling his promises. Moses wants to stress that this baby was no surprise. This baby was no accident. It's purposeful. The uh, ESV and other translations uh, pick up on a word that the NIV sort of misses here, and that's that idea of visit. So if you're reading along in the ESV and you see that word visit, God visited. He showed up. And unlike when he visited Sodom and Gomorrah, this time he visits and brings blessing to Abraham and to Sarah. And it's interesting, though, that the focus here is on Sarah. Not so much Abraham. Sarah. And there's this repetition of things that kind of come out here. As he had said. As he had promised. God had promised. And Moses needs He wants his people, the original audience, to get this idea that God is a God who keeps his word, that God is one who keeps his promises. This is essential for our understanding of who God is and essential for a healthy spiritual life. That he, we know that he is one who keeps his word. And so it starts with this incredible account that defies, in many ways, our understanding that God keeps his word. What was the response that takes place? I see two fundamental responses that take place to this reality of God keeping his word. And, uh, by the way, another thing that, that is stressed here in this text, that this was Abraham's child. Remember, we saw in the last chapter where uh, she had been taken by Abimelech and brought into the harem, and Moses again is affirming Abraham's child, not Abimelech's child. Abraham's. Very important to fulfill the fulfillment of God's promise. But we see two responses, and the first response is that by Abraham, and that is the response of obedience. The first thing that Abraham does is he, he names him Isaac, Isaac, laughter, because he, is, he had been told to name this child laughter. And so he does. He obeys God's command, first off, in the naming of this child. He does not presume to name this child what he wants to name this child, but because God had revealed the name, he obeys in naming this child that. The second thing he does in fulfillment of what God had commanded in Genesis 17 is that he circumcises Isaac on the eighth day. And so we see that God's faithfulness in the keeping of the promise is what produces Abraham's obedience. It is not the other way around. As Paul made great pains to show us in Galatians as we were reading before this, that it is not our obedience that produces God's faithfulness, but it is God's faithfulness that produces our obedience as a response to the grace that he has poured out to us. That is the biblical understanding. That is a gospel-oriented understanding that our obedience is a fruit of what he does. It does not produce his response and faithfulness to us. And so that, that first response was obedience. The second response, joy. Sarah 
laughed. Now, this was not the first time Sarah laughed. The first time she, she laughed was a year earlier, and it was sort of a laughing of unbelief. It had a tint of doubt into it, but now her laughter no longer has any tinge of doubt. She declares, God made laughter. God made this child. This is all sorts of good fun play on words here that's going to f- f- uh, flow into the rest of this chapter that we'll look at next week. But now we want to just focus on the good stuff. Joy. She was so overwhelmed with God's grace that she laughed. This is not sort of a mystical experience. Uh, you know, I spent um, well over a decade in Polk County, Florida. And for those of you who don't know, strange things happen in Polk County, Florida. And among the strange things that happened in Polk County, Florida, is that it was one of the centers for a movement called the Holy Laughter Movement. I don't know if you, any of you watched this on Christian TV, and if you did, you hopefully were repulsed by it. And what it is, is basically, they just would, in the middle of the church service, they would just start laughing. And they were acting like they're sloppy drunk. This is not that. That holy laughter had nothing that nothing to do with the word preached. It had nothing to do with grace received. It was just sort of this strange little thing that happened, and they all really got off. Oh, the spirit's at work. No, the spirit's not at work in that. <laughs> the laughter we see here is a response to God's gracious revelation. It is a response to God's amazing condescension in giving and fulfilling His promise. She is laughing because of what God has done. She is laughing with joy because that which she thought would never happen actually did. Amy never got back to me, but I'm gonna, so I'm going to tell a little story. You see... I'm reading this book called Flight Plan, which is for boys, and one of the things it mentions there is saving your first kiss for someone important, and Amy had done that. She decided she wasn't going to kiss anyone until she was engaged. And so, when I finally asked her to marry me, which is another one of those really happy days in my life, she said yes. I stuck that ring on her finger, and the kiss I gave her was the first kiss from a man that she was not related to. And she laughed. For 24 hours, she giggled and laughed because it was so, for her, so weird and so strange. You know? And I'm there going... You know... Part of what I hope her joy was was that God had finally prepared a man for her and had finally brought that man and now he had made a promise to her and was backing it up with an expensive little piece of jewelry to be put upon her finger, anticipating the greater thing that God would bring into her life. And so she was filled with this joy. Look at this for a moment, though. Moses reminds them, Abraham is a hundred. Okay? She's ninety. This is amazing. This is this unusual circumstance highlights his grace. Imagine for a moment 
Not my Amy. But that Amy. Pregnant. Yeah. You. (laughs) You know? Imagine if Amy Jolene was with child. And she hopefully would be very happy about this. (laughs) We're not sure if she'd actually be happy about this. But I think most of us here would laugh with her if she laughed. Now, there will be many around us who would not laugh, but would come aside and say, counsel her and say, really, should you have this child? Aren't you a little long in the tooth to be marrying, I mean, not just marrying, but to be having a baby? Our culture now has really moved to this place where it would not laugh and joy with her at the fulfillment of God's promise and the fulfillment of God's command that we see in Genesis 1 and 2 that would sort of despise what's going on here. There's, a, there's elements to our culture now that call people who have more than two kids breeders. Bad thing. Kids are an amazing thing. And part of what this text does is it affirms the sanctity of life for that very reason. This is a great thing that happens. And Sarah had this belief that, though, that others would laugh with her. She's not thinking, oh, I'm going to have joy, I'm going to enjoy this myself. But others will laugh with me. She believes that all who hear about this are going to join in her joy with her. Sort of like when, when we told our friends of Amy's response to that first kiss, what do you think they all did? They laughed. That's the, it's happened. They're filled with joy. She expects this laughter. Do, and, and so part of me wonders, do you laugh with Sarah at the fulfillment of God's promise? Is your heart filled with joy at the fulfillment of God's promise? Because without the fulfillment of this promise, you might as well just close the Bible. This promise isn't fulfilled. You don't have the fulfillment, the greater fulfillment in Jesus. Okay? This is a key instrumental promise in the Scriptures. This is not just some, oh, that's nice, they had a baby. This is the one through whom the Redeemer will come, the Rescuer will come, the Messiah will come. She expects others to laugh when they see this elderly couple with a baby, their own baby, not their grandchild, not their great-grandchild. This is good. And so when God fulfills His promises, He brings great joy to all who have waited and have trusted. Which brings us to the second part of this, is that God's promises fulfilled sustain our faith in future promises. And this gets more to what Moses is trying to communicate to the original audience of Genesis, the audience that was in the Exodus. Okay, This is more than just the typical story of a long-anticipated birth. This is far more significant than the birth of my daughter because this has impact upon, this is cosmic cosmic implications for the salvation of millions and billions of people. Significant story. 
God fulfilled the promise that he first made in Genesis 12 decades earlier. Okay? And so his original audience, the Exodus Jews, needed to know that the God that they were banking everything on when they left Egypt is a God who keeps his promises. They need to know this because they are going in light of his promises. Back again, Genesis 12. It was not just a seed, but to the land I will show you, to the land I will give you, and then later on God says, this is the land I'm going to give you, and that is the generation that is going to inherit the promise of God, and they're going to enter in this land, and they need to know that they are not going to risk everything on a whim, but that God is going to keep his promises. And so Moses is telling them, see, he keeps his promises. The child came, you Israel, all you dudes, are a result of the fulfillment of that first promise. Go, knowing that He is with you. Have courage. Go into the promised land. God will keep that promise. They needed this confidence because, remember, they'd spent almost 400 years as slaves. What do they know about going and conquering a land? Nothing. All they understand and know about is being conquered. It has to, they had to rest upon God. And they have to know He is one who's going to come through in the end. And so Moses is reminding them through this story, He does come through. So we see this, this, this thing at work that fulfilled promises build trust. Broken promises destroy trust. We see this all the time. Marriage, family, I've got two kids. I'm like, Eli, dude, why don't you trust us that there'll be food on the table? Isn't there food on the table every time we sit down to eat? Why do you act like you're never going to get food? It's been three years now. (laughs) Have you missed any meal? The fulfillment of our our responsibility to Him should engender trust in Him. And that's that's the part of the problem is we are broken inside and we have a, a reluctance to trust. And so we still have this reluctance to trust God. And so God brings out this whole book full of promises kept and says, I'm going to keep the... I've kept all of those... Won't you trust me on these last remaining ones, please? I'll be there with you. I will bring this to pass. And so, um, we see this operating. We see it fundamentally. I think one of the great passages, I think, that, that talks about this, or is used in this particular way, Matthew 24. Some of you probably just went, huh? Yes. The Olivet Discourse. They, Jesus, the, all the disciples are admiring the temple. Oh, Jesus, look how beautiful it is. And Jesus makes this comment that soon, not one stone will be upon another. It's going to be destroyed, wiped out, become insignificant. And they're like, when's this going to happen? When will this take place? When will the end of the age of the Jews come? And then a second question is, when Will you return? When is your coming? Parousia. When are you going to come and, when are you coming back? 
So there's two different questions that take place there. And the first question, Jesus answers saying, it will happen within one generation, 40 years. There will be signs. Okay? When the signs take place, get out of Jerusalem. Because it's about to be wiped out, you don't want to be there. When he speaks to the second question, the question of, the, of his, his return of the parousia, he says, there are no signs. I will come like a thief in the night when you don't expect me to. Two very different things. Okay, One, signs, so you know when it's going to happen and it's going to take place. Jesus even gives within 40 years it's going to happen. Second one, like a thief in the night. What happened with the first one? Forty years. Boom! Happened. Jerusalem was destroyed. The Christians were the, were the ones who got out before it happened. Okay? It's meant to function. We can trust that he will return, though he delays, precisely because he fulfilled his promise to destroy Jerusalem at the appointed time. Understand that? That's how Scripture is supposed to be working in our hearts. We begin to trust Him for these things that are not yet because of what He has already done. That is supposed to, how it's supposed to work in us. The, the first promise fulfilled helps us to trust the second promise which remains to be fulfilled. And so as it works, you know, sort of in the life of Israel, as they're, get, as they're, as they're sort of on the, the hint of the, the border of the promised land, it, there's supposed to be two things that happen. Grace was intended to produce obedience when they got into the promised land. Okay, let's not forget about Abraham's response. When God brings, fulfills the promise and brings them in, he's expecting them to live obedient to him. Obediently to him. In obedience to him. Even better. Okay? So, uh, they would know that, that, that God was not a delusion. God was not a fantasy. God was not an illusion. God's going to br- brings them into the promise land. They know He's real. Because of all the obstacles that had, they had to overcome in that process. But not only did grace produce obedience, but grace was also to produce great joy in the, in the fact that they were going to worship a promise-keeping God. And so we brothers and sisters, receive God's not yet promises with faith precisely because He has already fulfilled other promises. Which brings us to our last part. The imperative. After the indicatives. Receive your joy in Jesus. The guarantee of God's promises despite hardship. The original fulfillment of the promise in Genesis 12 was Isaac. But the way Scripture uses it, that there is a greater fulfillment. In other words, there is one who is greater than laughter. One who is greater than Isaac. That was to come. The one who will redeem God's people. So this is, this is in Galatians uh, three, it talks about this one who was greater than him, who brings about the promise that God gave to Abraham to not just Jews, but Gentiles. We see from 2 Corinthians chapter 1 that it says that all God's promises are yes in Christ Jesus. 
He is the guarantee of all God's promises. Jesus, as it says in Galatians, was born at the right time. In the fullness of time. Paul specifically uses that to remind people of Genesis 21 in the birth of Isaac. It was at the precise moment God ordained it to take place. Not a day too soon, not a day too late. At the right time, when it mattered, Jesus was born, but He was born so that all who trust in Him might experience this blessing of Abraham. They might become heirs of the promise, as it says. And so when we think about places like 2 Corinthians 1 and Galatians 3 and 4, we recognize that His death and His resurrection guarantee that God will keep all of His promises. And so when we're, in our, when we're praying, and we're asking God to fulfill His promises, part of what we do is we, we remember that Jesus died and rose again as a guarantee of that promise. It's not a question of if God will fulfill it. It is the question of when God will fulfill it. We're banking everything on the fact of Jesus died and rose again. If we're Christians. His death and resurrection also reveal the sanctity of life. Because that's what Jesus came to give to those who were walking dead. He came to bring life and life abundant. He came to give eternal life. shows the sanctity of our life here on earth as well. And so kind of working through that same thing that we thought about with the, the, the uh, Israelites who are going, you know, coming out of Egypt and going into the promised land, we, we see that through faith we also, from Jesus, receive both obedience and joy. Jesus came in part, to make us obedient to the Father. He removes all of our all the obstacles in our relationship with the Father. Uh, you know, he, he dies for our sins, so that no longer that's, that no longer stands between us and the Father. But he also works in us so that we become obedient to the Father. But Jesus also came to give us great joy. To give us His joy. And that's something we don't hear very often. Joy. You see some quotes from John Piper there, but you know, it's not original to John Piper. He's heavily dependent upon Jonathan Edwards, uh, who uh, didn't originate any of this stuff, but he is, in fact, highly dependent upon people like John Calvin, Jeremiah Burroughs, John Owen, There's something about that name, John, huh? Joy. The best theologians have understood this concept that everybody seeks joy. But we seek it in the wrong places. Like that bad country western song, looking for love in all the wrong places, yeah. We look for it in the wrong places instead of in God Himself. And they say that God offers Himself to us in part for our joy. Why did these guys say that? 
Because Scripture says that. That's why. And sometimes, Scripture joins these two things, these aspects of obedience and joy. John says in 15, and, uh, Jesus says in John 15, I have, told this, uh, I have told you this, so that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be complete. What did he just talk about? He talked about love for the Father producing obedience. That's what he just talked about. And so our obedience and our joy in God are joined together by Jesus. Jesus uh, says in chapter 17 in John's Gospel, I am coming to you now, but I say these things while I'm in the world so that they may have the full measure of joy, of my joy within them. Jesus wants his people not just to have joy, nondescript, but his joy. The joy of fellowship with the Father and the Spirit in love. Because isn't that what chapter 17 is a lot about? Unity? Our union with Christ bringing us into unity with Father, Son, and Spirit? And there's joy in that union, in that relationship. Romans 14, Paul says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, not about mere earthly pleasures, however nice they are, because anyone here like to eat? I know Bill likes to eat. I like good food. I like good beer. Okay? Eating and drinking is not sinful. And God has made it made us in such a way as that we can enjoy these things. We have taste buds that man, that's good food. Mmm. That's a good beer. But we don't stop there. If we stop there, then we've missed the point of the kingdom. Because Paul says, but it is a matter of righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Because anyone who serves Christ in this way, by the Spirit, is pleasing to God and approved by men. And so here Paul, just like Jesus, is, is joining righteousness pursued by, in the power of the Spirit with joy produced by that same Spirit as we serve Christ. Joins them together. And so what happens is these earthly pleasures are meant to point us to the greater pleasure. Jesus, particularly when we think of eating and drinking with the Lord's table, we think of that day when we will eat and drink with Him in His kingdom. And we will behold the sight that we've longed to see, Christ Himself, with our eyes. Because God has condescended to join humanity. Jesus has two natures. You can't see God, but you can see Jesus. And we shall. Not just that, but we see places like 1 Peter 1. Though you have not seen Him, Jesus, you love Him. Even though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. 
for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. And so the joy that we experience is also be tied, be tied to the enjoyment of, the, of eternal life, which starts now. Because Jesus says in John 17, this is eternal life. What is it? That you know the one true God and the one he has sent, Jesus Christ. If you know them, you have eternal life. It has started, and there is joy. So, lots of joy in Scripture. Okay? Now, this joy is there even in the midst of hardship. I think of the, the most joyful days of my life. And they were in fa- accompanied by, or surrounded by hardship. When I married Amy... I was in New Jersey, and in Florida, there were some people who weren't happy with me. There were people in the church that were withholding money. That There was an elder who was trying to have a coup against me. And so I'm getting married, and I'm so happy, and in the back of my mind, I'm going, what am I bringing my wife into? It's trying to steal my joy. Okay? Jaden born. Oh, well, what happened? We had just, the, 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 that Sunday was a, the first Sunday of our church restart. We're in a brand new building after all of the hurricanes, which you've heard about before. But here we are in a brand new building. A friend of mine preaches the sermon because that night I'm going to bring Amy to the hospital so she can be induced. And then 24 hours later, she will give birth to our little girl. I'm restarting a church. Any of you ever tried to do that? That's hard. That's difficult. The joy was not based upon all of my circumstances. But God's work, despite circumstances, and that's the way it is for all of us. It's not a joy that is separated from what's going on around us. You know, like everything is bliss, bliss, joy, joy. But in fact, this joy comes in the midst of conflict, the midst of difficulty, in the midst of disappointment, because something greater is going on than the circumstances you're currently experiencing. And it is only by faith that we grasp these things and receive God's promised eternal life. And so, brothers and sisters, I ask you, where, do, where does your joy lie? Is it stuck in food and drink? Or is it Jesus himself? Is it in our toys and technology? Or is it in Christ himself? Is it in your earthly relationships? Or is it in Christ himself? You see, when we bank on something besides Jesus for our ultimate joy... That's idolatry. We are expecting something from that thing that we are only supposed to expect from Jesus himself. Amy, great wife. Source of much joy. But if she is the ultimate source of my joy, I make my wife into an idol. And she cannot bear the, the expectations I place upon her. She will be crushed because I will, when she disappoints me, I will be ruthless if she is my idol. If I expect her to be my God, I will crush her when she disappoints. 
It is only when I'm looking to Christ to be my ultimate sense of joy that I can support her when she disappoints. And it goes the other way too. If I'm her ultimate source of joy, man, she's in trouble, I'm in trouble. We're both in trouble. It's meant to be Christ. But not, not only that, Do you share your joy in Christ? If you have it, do you share it? Which is the hint there of what's going on in Genesis 21. Everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. Do you share that? Or do you hide it up? Are you inviting others to find their joy in Him instead of in everything else? Yeah, Evangelism embraces the sanctity of life. Because it seeks to rescue people from the depths of hell and death. So, anyway, God has His glory in our joy on His mind. Promises fulfilled do more than change our circumstances, they are intended by God to change us. So, having tasted the goodness and greatness of God, we are meant to grow in joy and obedience, or joyful obedience. Let's not separate them. But if neither show up in your life, perhaps you haven't really encountered the God of the Bible, whose kingdom is marked both by righteousness and joy in the power of the Holy Spirit. It's not something you can manufacture or muster up. But we are dependent upon Him. Let's pray. Father, you are a promise-keeping God. I get excited when I look at these texts and I think about these things. And I get exuberant and long-winded. But you are faithful to us despite our own unfaithfulness to you. Just as you were faithful to Abraham despite his unfaithfulness to you. And your grace is truly amazing. And I ask that you would help that to sink deep into our hearts so that we might grow in obedience and joy through the, uh, the work of, of your Spirit in us, applying the work of Christ for us. But I also ask that you would be at work through us as we share that joy with others. Help us to seek our joy in your Son. Not our circumstances, not your ordinary gifts, but in Him. May those ordinary gifts point us to Him. That we, may not, we might be most satisfied in you, so that you might be most glorified in us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.